Hello, church family. I uh, hope that these uh, daily devotionals are helpful to you. Uh, as I've mentioned over and over again, it's just been a joy to be, for me to be able to study and just kind of go over this book and then to be able to share things that I've learned uh, in hopes that you too can be um, have your hearts knit close to the Lord during this time. Uh, today we're actually going to do Esther, we're going to begin Esther chapter 3. <laughs> and like the previous ones in the last several weeks, I'm just going to talk through the lesson first, talk, talk through the passage first, and then uh, throughout the coming uh, sessions or episodes, what do you want to call it, or parts, you have the application points. So the, the first one is usually the longer one. That's what this one is. This is chap- part one of chapter three. And to begin, I'd like to just, uh, just talk, share a little bit about uh, just the reality of the Christian life. We understand that as Christians that persecution is actually a norm. Uh, we should be expecting it. Uh, the Christian life doesn't promise a life of ease. It doesn't promise a life of leisure. In fact, Jesus said multiple times that uh, the church will be persecuted, that they would persecute us because they want to kill Jesus, that they hate us, first and foremost, is because they hate uh, Jesus uh, first. Um, and uh, Christ talks about even in parables with the four soils, that when one of the uh, seeds landed on the <laughs> Then on one of the soils, the one with the roots, uh, with no roots, it said that in Matthew 13, verse 21, well, the one that landed the rocky soil, uh, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word of God immediately and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately falls away. Um, in the book of Acts, we see that uh, persecution happened, uh, it was like a norm for the early church. In Acts chapter 8, verse uh, 30, uh, oh, sorry, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and um, uh, this is after when uh, Paul, or the, uh, Saul at the time, uh, wanted to kill um Stephen, and afterwards, this is what it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Uh, Paul later, who, or Saul, eventually gets saved, and he understands, uh, he actually eventually gets persecuted himself, so he is kind of like a, um, this is this, uh, a turn of events where at one point he was destroying the church and then now he is being destroyed. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Paul writes, Therefore I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So it's actually a norm for Christians to be persecuted, uh, but it's actually abnormal for Christians to be in a safe environment. Uh, we live in a unique time in America. In fact, in, I'm reading this book about Christian liberty versus, um, uh, well, actually, just about religious liberty as a whole. And did you know that in America there are there are all of these different laws and regulations that protect people that hold to certain faith? Like there are rules that can allow us to practice the things that we practice. Uh, there are actually laws that can keep us from from persecution. Um, and there and and. These things are good. They are grace from God, but oftentimes we take for granted uh, because we have to understand that persecution is a norm for the church. And there are good reasons to be persecuted. Right? We understand that 
uh, as Christians, if we are being persecuted for the gospel, that's a legitimate reason to be persecuted. Um, anything the the Bible teaches and the world goes against us for it, that's that's fine. That's normal for the world because when they see us, they see our lives, it pricks their conscience and they want to end it. Uh, they want us to stop. They want us to stop uh, uh, reminding them of the sin that they live. Um, but there are at the same time, on the flip side and on the unfortunate side, there are also poor reasons to be persecuted. In fact, Peter reminds the church this way in First Peter 2, verse 20, uh, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer, or if you part patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So, if Christians are persecuted, or professing Christians are persecuted for things that they are doing wrong, they deserve it. But if you <coughs> are a Christian, and you're living faithfully, and you're being persecuted, you get an opportunity to represent Christ uniquely. I say this because this chapter really highlights what a wrong reason to be persecuted. Uh, there are, you're going to see these characters do weird and evil things, and things that uh, Christians even today would do. Uh, and I hope that as you see this, again, it is a way of like looking at, you know, seeing our sins better and, and the lives of other people, that we force ourselves to be more faithful in the way that we live. So, again, this first part, we're just going to uh, just talk through the text, and just so that we can understand that what's going on in, the, in chapter 3. So again, background for chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 1, uh, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, has this party. He gets drunk. He wants to display his wife. His wife denies him, uh, rejects his uh, command. He gets frustrated, overreacts, exiles queen. Uh, chapter 2, he wants to find a new queen. He goes through this whole beauty pageant thing, and he finds a new queen. And in the process... Uh, there's different people in place so that he's able to um, basically have uh, a, a new queen that's willing to submit to him. So when we get to chapter 3, chapter 3, I think I would argue that chapter 3 is really when the story begins. Really, we finally begin to understand what the conflict is. Because if you read the first two chapters, and you can just kind of, it's kind of like the problem, the main problem the first two chapters is, will the king ever find another lover? And you could kind of cut the first two chapters, and then by the end of chapter two, it would seem like, okay, problems solved because they have Esther. But chapter three is really when the conflict begins, because everything after this, it, it explains what's the point of all of this. Chapter three, it reveals the plot. The plot thickens, as they say. So chapter three, verse one, begins this way. After these things, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamathiah and the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Um, and again, this is uniquely placed here because, remember, right before Mordecai, he, he unveils his plot against the king, and uh, as he does it, after he did this, he didn't get any rewards. He just was basically overlooked. He just, they just put his name in like the history book, and that's all he got. Um, so this other guy, and after this, all this thing happened, uh, the king, Ahasuerus, promotes this other new guy named Haman. And uh, we'll explain a little bit more about him as we get uh, later on. But verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. 
for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. And you can kind of understand if you were uh, in Mordecai's position, because you just you know, uncovered the secret plot against the king, and the king just wrote your name in his book and didn't pay you, didn't give you any, uh, any uh, promotions or anything, and you were just basically overlooked. So Mordecai uh, did not bow down to him or pay homage. But I think that's just a surface level of why he didn't pay homage to him, because later on I'll explain why there's actually a history between Mordecai and Haman. Uh, but but for, for for but he has reason to not bow down to him, and it's not what you think. Verse three. Then the king's servant, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, "Why are you transgressing the king's command?" Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them. They had uh, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So these servant guys were like, hey, why aren't you listening to the king? And they spent <laughs> days trying to convince him, like, uh, you, should, you should pay homage to this guy. And he later he explains, well, the reason why I'm not doing this is because I'm a Jew. And verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ashurharis. So, this is, again, you can see throughout this book that sometimes men in great power overreact, right? King Ashurharis overreacted, fires the queen. Haman, high position, didn't get one guy. Actually, everyone was, like, paying homage, except for this one guy. This one guy, Mordecai, chose not to do it. He gets so mad, he decides to once exterminate every single Jew out there. Um, Verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, per, that is the lot which cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month. So twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. So if you think about casting lots, it's kind of like, in this context, more like a rolling a dice. So he, he, or maybe a more modern analogy would be like, you know how back then people, or I don't know if you did this when you were younger, where, where there's a thing where you pick flowers petals off flowers, it was like, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, or she loves me, she loves me not kind of thing. I think usually girls do. I don't know what the guy equivalent is. But imagine Haman doing this. He's like there picking uh, petals off flowers, saying, should I kill Haman today? Should I kill Haman today? And it goes, yes, no, yes, no. And he does this for 12 months until he gets the answer saying, this is the time to kill Haman. I mean, kill Mordecai. Haman is like, okay, cool. I went, now I'm going to go and, uh, pl- and plot my revenge. So he spends 12 months trying to uh, cast lots to figure out when's a good time to take out uh, Mordecai. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the province of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it's not, to, not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasure. So what you will notice about this is that he doesn't actually, Haman explicitly does not name out or call out the Jews by name. He just said there's a certain group of people. He's trying to cover it um, uh, just so that, like, uh, you know, just in case, he might have any close associates uh, 
or friends. He didn't want to just single them out, but little did he know the queen is actually a Jew. Uh, but he, he did this, he did this intentionally. Again, this is a manipulation. Uh, again, uh, like I said earlier, every one of the characters, every character in this book are manipulating one another for their own end. And, uh, and again, the king here, this King Aju Harris is again being moved into doing something by other people. In chapter one, he was moved by, uh, his friends. In chapter two, he was moved by his friends. Chapter three, moved by Haman again. He, and then, and then verse nine. If, uh, uh, oh, sorry, verse, yeah, verse nine. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I pay. So he basically, Haman saying he'll pay, he'll, he'll, he'll handle it. He'll, he'll give all the money and do all this needed. And so nothing go on the king. Uh, he can keep his throne and, uh, he wants, he can stop all the people that are, that are basically living a life that's contrary to the Persian. Then the king took the signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadath, the Agatite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also, to do them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month and is written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people, each province according to a script, each people according to his language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet. Now this sounds similar because it's it's exactly how chapter 1 ended. Remember when Queen Vashti was uh, rebelled and then they're like, okay, when you make some decree so that every single uh, man and woman will know the new decree that wives need to be honoring to their husbands uh, and they did it with every single language and the same thing here he he wanted to make sure that everyone in, every, in all the 126 provinces that the jews are going to be exterminated and this is a decree from the king uh, verse 13 letters were sent by couriers couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy kill and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th, the 13th uh, day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possession as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the people so that they should uh, be ready for this day. It was insane about this. This is uh, a one year ahead. Like they told them this one year in advance and in is in, in right before Passover. And uh, they did this, uh, Haman, I think, did this intentionally so that he can basically slaughter the Jews at a time where uh, the Jews wanted to celebrate the most. Uh, and again, you know, for us as Christians, uh, we just celebrated Passover. So we kind of understand, like, the, can you imagine a year ago, someone planting a, a plot against Christians said that one year from now, we're going to exterminate all of you. So that was the law. They have one year to prepare, to brace themselves from this, to try to like uh, either leave or find a way to like change the king's mind. And uh, and we see uh, verse 15, the very last verse of chapter three. The couriers went out, uh, went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. And you can imagine the entire like this. The carriers reading this out loud or putting it on the wall saying, okay, one year from now, we're going to exterminate all Jews. And you feel, why? Why? What, what is this? What is happening? Why are they doing all this? And as this is going on, the king and Haman were just drinking. 
They're just drinking away. Again, this is a usual, this is like vintage King Azure Harris. He used to love to drink and have other people tell him what to do. And we'll see how this actually all happened, mainly because Mordecai was not a good testimony. Had he been faithful, and uh, but then again, yet at the same time, we understand God's sovereign plan, even people's mistakes, God's still able to use it. But that does not mean that as Christians, we need to, uh, we can't live in such a way that's displeasing to the world. Uh, we should still live holy and godly lives. And there are things that, there, again, there are reasons for us to be persecuted, but there are also other reasons that are not legitimate reasons to be persecuted. That's what we're going to look at this week. Three reasons why Christians, or three bad reasons to be persecuted for. Three three bad reasons to be persecuted for. And we'll look at that, uh, the first one, uh, starting tomorrow. Okay. Uh, if you have any questions um, about this book or even in general, feel free to email me. And, and I, again, every Friday I'm going to do this Q&A thing. Uh, last week was fun, at least for me, to be able to answer some of these questions. Feel free to send in more. And uh, we again, there's like, there's a few, well, there's a good handful, but I don't mind uh, having more just to kind of lump some of them together. Again, just to know how I can serve you the best that I can. Okay, uh, until the next one. Bye.